Hi, this is Kate. I wanted to pop on and make a little announcement before the podcast today, uh, just to let you know that I'm going to be taking a break over the summer, um, but we'll be back in the autumn with a new season um, of Love Sober, the podcast. And uh, with a little bit of a change of direction, a little bit of a different angle, so you have to watch this space, all will be revealed. Uh, please bear with um, while we have a little bit of a break and I really look forward to seeing you in the autumn don't forget to sign up um, at lovesober.com for the newsletter and you can keep in contact like that or follow um, me at on instagram at lovesober.cic um, and you can always get in touch at hello at lovesober.com love to hear from you and see you in the autumn hi I'm Kate and I'm Mandy and this is love sober the podcast for the sober and sober curious hi and welcome back to love sober the podcast for the sober and sober curious um today i'm absolutely delighted to and honored to uh, welcome anna lemke md she is a professor of psychiatry at stanford university school of medicine Chief of Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Uh, she's a clinician and a scholar. She's testified, testified before the United States House of Representatives and is an internationally recognized leader in addiction and medicine treatment and education. Um, she has appeared in Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and authored two books. Uh, one Drug Dealer MD was uh, highlighted as in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read. And the one that we're really diving into today, um, which I love, it, it lit up my brain. It gave me a proper dopamine hit, <laughs> I think, right? One of its dopamine nation. Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, um, which is your latest book um so welcome Anna I'm so glad to welcome you today how how are you doing we always start with a bit of a check-in how are you today I'm good it's Monday for me um in and we have beautiful weather we're anticipating a heat wave but um it's beautiful today and I'm doing well thank you for asking you know, we spoke slightly before about sort of widening the lens, widening the aperture from one of, you know, in the UK for many, many years, sort of exacerbated by the press and also just, you know, floating around in, in, in our common consciousness, our sort of cultural narrative. Addiction was very black and white. It's, you know, the whole host of normal people and then a few uh, poor addicts over over there in the corner that we all felt really sorry for. And so I guess I want to kick off by asking you, why is actually addiction everyone's business? Yeah, addiction really has become everyone's business. And the reason is that we all have the same ancient wiring to approach pleasure and avoid pain. It's evolved over millions of years. It's essentially remained identical across species. Even the most primitive lizard has essentially the same reward circuitry in its brain as we do. Um, and this reward circuitry is 
reflexive. We don't have to think about using it and it can very quickly uh, take over and uh, dominate any other consideration. And it's a brilliant design for a world of scarcity, which is the world that we've lived in for most of human existence. It's an absolutely terrible design for the world we live in now, which is a world of overwhelming abundance. And not just abundance to meet our basic survival needs, what we have now is nearly infinite access to highly reinforcing slash addictive substances and behaviors at the touch of a fingertip to the point where almost every human experience has become drugified, whether it's eating or having sex or making a friend uh, or, you know, uh, drinking a coffee or whatever it is, there's almost shopping, um, you know, nothing that we do anymore that hasn't become in some, some ways uh, turned into an intoxicant. It is, in essence, you know, the, the dark side of capitalism. Mm. It's almost like everything has been ramped up. <laughs> so, you know, if you go for a coffee, it's like all of these different choices and, I don't know, cinnamon swirl on top. It's like everything is like something on top. Um, yeah, right. Well, the, the problem is that our, you know, ancient wiring, our reward circuitry, um, was designed for uh, scarcity to keep us constantly striving for the next reward in order to survive uh, in a world uh, in which just finding food, clothing, and shelter was difficult. Um, and the, the way that you know our brains process reward and process a pleasure and pain. First of all, pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. Uh, which is interesting, uh, which is a relatively new finding in neuroscience. And they work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we do something reinforcing, it tips our balance aside of pleasure. But one of the rules governing that balance is it wants to return to a level uh, state or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And the way that the brain does that is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's called the opponent process mechanism. We experience that as the hangover, the come down, the after effect, that moment of wanting one more glass of wine, right? Mm. Um, now, if we wait long enough, you know, uh, we restore balance. But if, but the urge to repeat ingestion uh, in that moment of the balance tipping to the side of pain before it goes back to the level position is the urge to reuse is 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 overwhelming, and if combined with that very strong need to have that pleasurable experience again, or to sustain ourselves in that state of pleasure, if combined with that physiologic urge, which has driven our seeker mentality uh, for you know millions of years, if now at the touch of a fingertip, we can get more, which we can, now we're in a very problematic situation. Uh, because our brains were not evolved for that fire hose of dopamine that's unleashed by our ability to constantly get more of whatever we like. And the result is ultimately that we enter into this dopamine deficit state where no amount of pleasure gives us joy. And even the merest discomfort uh, is experienced as very painful. We've essentially re reset or changed our hedonic set point to the side of pain. Yeah. So no, basically nothing's going to be enough and nothing's going to be satisfying no matter what we do. That's and right. 
And at the same time, we lose the ability to see Mm. that chasing dopamine gets us in this vicious loop. And we look for all kinds of other explanations, you know, understand why we're unhappy. Uh, But in fact, it's the, you know, the, the unmitigated a search for pleasure for its own sake that's making us unhappy. Mm. And I mean, yeah, I could go, I'd like to kind of go wide, but almost for the purpose of, you know, listeners to, to the podcast, mainly we're talking about alcohol. Um, and we, you know, we spoke before about the sober and the sober curious. Um, and the that there's been a bit of a shift in the UK to understanding and making it a bit more acceptable for people to question their drinking women, especially to question their drinking earlier on. So we've had quite a lot, uh, you know, a, a favorable and very much overdue kind of cultural, cultural shift, really. Um, I was thinking about as a gray area drinker, you know, someone who was earlier on, you know, wasn't, well, this may be something we can unpick, chemically, physically addicted to alcohol in that I could go days without, sometimes I could stop after a couple, sometimes it was like Russian roulette, roulette, you know, sometimes I just couldn't, it was like a starter gun went off, and that was it, you know, to blackout. Um, and typically we find with this kind of gray area, there might be a bit of toing or throwing. It's almost like, you know, the old models of, of kind of recovery, AA sort of thing, where it was like, right, okay, if you relapse, you'll die, basically. We were seeing this, this wasn't the case. It was like, but there was this, this toing and froing. Um, and for me, I was thinking about a particular time where I decided that I was going, I, done about a year sober and then I decided that I was gonna I was fine you know I was I was absolutely fine I've done a year no I didn't know any of the brain science the neuroscience at that point all the habit change stuff so it's like I was fine I had worked on I'd meditated you know I'd got some really good sort of self-care on board so that that was fine and I remember I had this I had a drink and immediately the booze chatter started it was like literally instantaneous and mm. I couldn't believe it. I was thought I'm the one person to get away with this. The you know the wine witch caller started mm. up again, chatting, chatting, chatting. So I was gutted. And then it took me about another year and a half to get some good sober, proper sober time. Mm. And the next time I can remember, I was working really hard at moderating so I had a, I had a glass of wine it was a Sunday afternoon I was doing some ironing you know it just wasn't glamorous at all it was like there's no point to it at all and but I thought that might be safe and I just thought I think it was like what you said about that tipping point with pain and pleasure because I realized that I could never be a happy carefree drinker again because mm. actually if I was trying to control it it was just really unpleasant and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, what's that famous saying? One is too many and two is never enough. Yeah, something, yeah. Yeah, and it was like, oh, no, the, the horse is, has bolted, is out of the stable. There's, there was almost in that moment, and again, it's not really a rock bottom because it was like, oh, there is actually no point to doing this anymore. 
right right like yeah. whatever it was is gone so what's what's yeah. the point um yeah. you know but and that's easier said than done when you throw the stress in and so yeah. um what about I mean then sort of going a bit wider again because I remember early on a, on a sober forum too that I got very interested in well one of the ways I quit was to find sober treats uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. So, and somebody on a sofa forum said, well, you've got to be really careful of cross addiction. And I said, it's just a lipstick. Like <laughs> I've not got a Prada habit. I've just buying a lipstick and it's made me feel a bit better today and I haven't drunk. And I mm-hmm. wonder if you could speak to, but in terms of trading one devil for a lesser devil mm-hmm. and the, and the dopamine side of it, what, what, I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there's, you know, so much what you said there, starting with, you know, the recognition that there are more and more women struggling with problematic alcohol consumption. The data show that over the last 30 years, um, there's been about a 50% increase in women with alcohol addiction. Um, So, you know, this is, this is real. And, you know, addiction is a spectrum disorder, but um, just you know, on, on the more significant you know end of it, we have more and more women struggling uh, with this problem, and so I think this is a kind of a good natural correction that's occurring now that women are beginning to say, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, there's a we have a, we may have a problem here, and then beginning to wonder what what to do about it. Um, yeah, and then I guess just sort of addressing your own experience of finding that even after a sustained period of abstinence. You, um, when you went back to drinking, you were immediately plunged into the same headspace as uh, when you had been at the height of your drinking. And of course, clinically, we see that all the time. Um, What the animal science shows is is something very consistent with that, that suggests that once we become addicted, we have undergone some kind of permanent brain alteration um, that we can recover from, but never entirely get away from. And the experiment in particular that I'm thinking of is one in which rats were injected with cocaine sequentially over the course of seven days. And with each subsequent day, the rats began um, running faster and faster in this open space in the cage. Typically rats will kind of slink to the side. They won't cross over in the cage. But by day seven, these rats were in this absolute running frenzy. Then uh, the cocaine injections were stopped and the rats, uh, you know, received uh, no cocaine or any other, um, you know, addictive substance for a year, which is about a rat lifetime. So, you know, equating that to humans, that would be like decades and decades of no exposure. And then uh, the rats were re-injected, those same rats with a single dose of cocaine, and immediately they were uh, plummeted into that running frenzy that they had manifested at day seven which tells us that there is some kind of permanent brain change, right? That yeah. happens. And that even with um, a lot of abstinence, um, you know, something is fundamentally different. So I think that that's an important data, data point, certainly consistent with our clinical experience, consistent with your experience Yeah. Um, that, you know, once you've been into the, in that sort of more addictive space or you're vulnerable to the problem of addiction, it's not going to, you know, uh, it's always going to be a challenge. Mm. Now to your, you know, kind of suggesting this idea of moderation and how difficult it was. So Mm. there was traditionally this idea in addiction medicine that 
people with addiction could never go back to using their drug in moderation. But in fact, there are data, data uh, you know, in the peer-reviewed literature, medical literature, showing that there probably are some people who uh, have been diagnosed with alcohol addiction who after, and this is important, after a period of sustained abstinence, who knows how long, mm. uh, and go back to using their drug in moderation. And I can tell you in my clinical practice, a very small sliver of individuals have been able to do that. Yeah. Most of my patients severely addicted to alcohol are really not able to go back to using in moderation. They have to try, try a couple times, you know, as they say, gather the data mm -hmm. before they're convinced that they can't go back to drinking. Um, but having said that, there, I do have a small subset of patients who's able to maintain moderate drinking after having been engaged in alcoholic drinking. Now, I will say about 90% uh, of those individuals will eventually choose abstinence. Mm. Why? Because moderation is just too much work and not worth it. Not yes. worth it because of, again, one drink is too many and two is never enough. The moderated drinking doesn't get them where they want to go. And yeah. so if it's not going to get me where I want to go, you know, why, why drink at all? And that's ultimately... Mm. Now to answer your question regarding the lipstick. So there has been this popularized idea that to change habits, what you do is you trade one reward for another. And I think to some extent for people who are not actually addicted to their mm -hmm. drug, that can probably work. For people who are actually addicted, who change one pleasure for another pleasure, the risk of getting addicted to that second pleasure is actually pretty high. You don't think of buying um, you know, lipsticks as like, well, just you're buying something, so who cares? But I have lots and lots of patients who have given up alcohol and become compulsive luxury purse shoppers, for example. And Amazon, of course, facilitates all of that. So, you know, uh, the question for you would be, well, how many lipsticks do you currently own? Like, is it <laughs> yeah, it maybe pairs of glasses. I remember actually. Right, or maybe you don't want to share a, that. Right. Yeah, but, having quite a few pairs of glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why, you know, one of the prescriptions that I give people is instead of replacing your escape pleasure with another escapist pleasure, why don't you replace it with its opposite, something that's actually hard or painful? Mm. Or instead of turning away from that thing that you're trying to escape, why don't you turn toward it and dive deep into it and explore it? Mm. So in other words, really face your fear or face the thing that you're avoiding. And I find this is effective, not only for giving people that dopamine hit they want, but indirectly through pain, uh, but also, you know, getting them to uh, lead richer lives, right? Mm. Instead of trying to um, numb yourself and stop thinking certain thoughts, dive into those thoughts, mm. face what you're afraid of, you know, grab it with both hands and look at it and get curious about it. And I have found that that can be a way, kind of like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting. Do you guys know Georgia O'Keeffe? Yeah. yeah. She, she, she paints, she used, to, I think she, she's no longer with us, but uh, she painted these very close-up drawings of, um, of flowers mm. so close up that they were no longer recognizable as mm. flowers. I think that's a great metaphor for life. Like when we face our fears and deeply get curious about the things that we're trying to avoid, they become mm. different and they become interesting and, and they can, you know, make us feel attached to our lives, tethered mm. to earth, connected to other people. What about, can you give us an, an example when you said, you know, instead of yeah, going to something pleasurable, but go towards something painful. What would what would that look like? 
So this is essentially the science of hormesis. So there's mm. science behind this. Hormesis is a Greek term, which means to set in motion. Mm. And basically what happens is, and we have lots of animal and human data for this, when we expose ourselves intentionally to mild to moderate noxious or painful stimuli, what it does is it triggers the body's own re-regulating homeostatic mechanisms to upregulate feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. So this is things like exercise in moderation, ice cold water baths, intermittent fasting, um, but it doesn't have to even be physical. It can be mental. This can be exposure therapy, forcing yourself to do things that are psychologically anxiety provoking, um, things that are cognitively challenging, things that are creative and require your sustained attention without interruption. So putting your devices away, um, even things like prayer and meditation, sitting with the big quiet and allowing yourself to immerse yourself, you know, in, in a meditative or prayerful way um, into the big quiet and tolerating that. Yeah. Um, so it's things like that. Okay. And so what about, so this leads me on to the question um, about trauma. So it's, you know, statistically, there's a big link between, you know, chronic stress, trauma, and female drinking, and female use of alcohol to kind of self-soothe. And I know for me, certainly in that first year of sobriety, before I went back to drinking, I was dealing with unresolved you know I was dealing with some unresolved mental health issues some adverse childhood experiences bubbling away some old trauma and and chronics just two young children you know all the stuff and quite frankly it was too much so I think you know you know in my head oh my choice to just you know I'm I'm fine that was on the surface, me, my little narrative. Actually, what was going on for me was a whole truck of dysregulation, trauma, blah, 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 blah. What, how can we, I suppose, I don't want to say, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I've got the words titrate, I've got the words make it slightly easier so that we don't re-traumatize ourselves or that, or that we have a kind of a more safe passage how do we respect that that sort of trauma aspect i guess yeah so so trauma is certainly a gateway to addiction as people turn to addictive substances and behaviors to escape uh, you know the the pain of trauma but it's important to acknowledge too that uh, the addiction can itself become a source of trauma right and that when we're, when we're addicted we're we're, we're leading pretty chaotic lives um, and, and that then, you know, adds to our stress, very famous experiment that if you take a rat and you get it addicted to cocaine or methamphetamine or what have you, uh, which is to say that that rat knows that if it presses a lever, uh, it will get cocaine, uh, injected intravenously that, that in general, the rat will press the lever until it's, uh, can't press it more for, from exhaustion or until it dies. If you then take the cocaine away, eventually that behavior will extinguish. The rat will realize, oh, there's nothing good coming here. They'll stop doing it. But then if you expose that rat to an ext extremely painful foot shock, okay, even after that behavior has been extinguished, the first thing the rat will do after the painful foot shock is run over to the level lever and start pressing it, right? Mm, okay. 
So it's very clear that stress and trauma, once we've been addicted, can reactivate addictive behaviors, right? And of course, our first entry into addiction, there are many different doors into addiction, trying to self-medicate, you know, a psychiatric disorder, trying to escape trauma or an untenable situation where you, you know, you can't get out of it. Um, you know, biological propensity to get addicted even without trauma. So I think that's important to acknowledge too, that people can have the perfect childhoods and the perfect lives and still get addicted, right? And because one of the stressors is that we live in a really stressful world and we have lots of access to drugs and access in itself is a risk factor, a big risk factor for addiction. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a complicated uh, interwoven things, uh, stress and trauma can lead to addiction. Addiction can exacerbate and lead to stress and trauma. But one thing uh, that I see that clinically that you know might be of interest to you is, I have a lot of patients who come in and they say, "Well, I just need to you know find out why I drink, and once I figure that out, I'll stop drinking." But the truth is that even if we understood a hundred percent, you know, some of the reasons, the, the psychological reasons that. Uh, that we drink, it doesn't necessarily mean that that would stop us from drinking. Um, because once we begin that, you know, get caught in that addictive vortex, it basically has a life of its own. And our brains have an uncanny ability uh, to, you know, weave a narrative, mm. explain yeah. the behavior. But, you know, addiction doesn't need a separate explanation. It's the physiology, physiology yeah. of addiction itself, which can drive the addiction. So I think it's really important to recognize that. And I say to patients, you know, any antidepressant or anxiolytic that I could prescribe is not going to work while you're drinking these amounts. And psychotherapy is not going to get you anywhere either. You have to stop the drinking first and you have to do it without knowing the reasons and without feeling like it. So this is really key. Well, you know, if only I felt this way, if I could figure out this thing, it's like, you know, sometimes insight is the booty prize. You just got to stop drinking mm. and then the insight will come. Yeah. You know, and yeah. The insight comes after the rewards come after. Um, and I really resonate with that. And I love what you said about the, uh, the weaving, the narrative, um, around it and and so the big takeaway and this again from this is mirrored from earlier an echo from earlier which was it's it's an argument for abstinence right it's it's that that you can't it, that's just it once once the once the horse is bolted to use my analogy again there have been changes in the brain which you've said we can recover from so we can recover equilibrium balance put our lives back together but if we introduce the substance again that's that that fires back up and there we are again yes that's right and And i would also add that these people who are struggling with problematic or addictive drinking are you know represent all of us now i mean because if it's not booze it's our smartphones right We were all struggling with this compulsive overconsumption, the way that we bracket our entire day with these rewards. Mm. And once you build your day around looking forward to your reward, you've really diminished your capacity to be present in the moment. Mm. So a really interesting experiment, which is painful initially, especially until the brain sort of readapts and and reestablishes normal reward thresholds, is to abstain. And that, that I think is a worthy exercise for all of us to, not, not, to go through a day or a series of days with nothing to look forward to. Yeah. And, as, and it, as a philosophical stance, so, you know, yeah, a stoic, a stoic yeah, stance. I mean, just, just notice how it changes the shape of your experience. Like if I'm not now here, I am talking to you. And if I'm 
just waiting to get off this call to have a drink or to do something else that's distracting that I'm not really in on this call, right? You're not, you're never quite present. And we have this sense of this deep sense, this loneliness and this feeling of disconnection and that we're missing out and that everything is just out of reach. And you hear that so much, um, I'm I'm interested in that. So is this what you is kind of dopamine fasting? Is this is that the idea behind dopamine fasting? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, to just to riff a little bit more on the philosophical, I mean, yeah. our, our, I think it's acknowledging that for all of us, our desire is infinite. Mm. We will never be full up. It will never be enough. Yeah. Um, and once we can really fully embrace that there is a kind of a, like a settling into that, which is, you know, kind of peaceful. It's like, okay, here we go. Yeah. We'll let the monkey go on. Yeah. Let let the chariot clatter about. We don't need to be on it and missing everything else. That's right. Which sounds like to me, what I get from yoga. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Settling, centering, grounding experiences. Yeah. So in terms of the dopamine fast, so, Mm. you know, when I talk about that, what I really mean by that is that we, we would identify what is that drug? Mm. And I use the term drug very broadly to include behaviors. Mm -hmm. What is that drug that I have this, um, you know, conflicted relationship with that I use more than I want. I use more often than I want. I may be hiding my use or the extent of my use. I wish I could use less. It's interfering with my goals and values. Find out what that is for you know each person and then commit to 30 days of abstaining from that. So it doesn't mean eliminating all rewards. Some people do that and that's fine. Or some people will note that one reward is very tied to another. Like yeah. my video game addiction is very tired, tied to my watching YouTube videos. Mm. So this was a patient of mine who discovered this. So he gave up. All, all YouTube and video games for a month. But the point of it is to give it up, to know that we'll feel worse before we feel better because we'll go into that withdrawal state that lasts about two weeks. And then to come out the other side and know really, you know, what are the pros and cons of not having that substance in my life mm-hmm. or that behavior, which is really hard to do objectively when we're using. And that's, that's why it's important to do the fast. And then when we get to the end of that, say, okay, you know, were there enough good things there that I actually want to continue to abstain? If not, how am I going to reintroduce, you know, this substance or behavior back into my life and use less and use in a way that's consistent with my goals and values. Mm. And there's that, that the, so really the addiction is almost categorized by the relationship. I'm doing it too much. I have shame around it. It's conflicting with my, is this conflict, right? It's, I think it's it's many dimensions, right? I wouldn't want to just say it's just like the nature of the relationship, although that's, but it's quantity and frequency. So quantity and frequency matter. Daily use is highly indicative of, you know, habitual slash compulsive slash addictive use. It's um, how much, you know, and again, we're very bad judges of that. Like the other day, my daughter came up to me and said, mom, you're always not watching YouTube now. And I said, no, I'm not. I, I barely watch YouTube. But after she left, I, I actually sat down and did what's called the timeline follow-back method, where you actually count the past seven days, what you've consumed day to day. And it was like, whoop, I watched YouTube probably for about 10 hours this week. If you had asked me though, in the moment without my focusing on it, I would have said, Maybe it was max two hours in the past week. Mm. So, you know, when we stop and are honest and really count it up, 
What most of us find is that we're using more than we think we are. So in order to use in moderation, we have to find some way of tracking it that's really honest and holds, holds us accountable because the tendency is always to kind of drift to more and not see it. Mm. So there's the habit tracking. Um, there is the abstinence. How else can we, and leaning towards it, you know, that, that leaning into the discomfort, sitting with some discomfort, what else can we do to build our resilience and resistance to the dopamine? Yeah, so, so the leaning into dis- discomfort, I would take it even a step further and actually inviting pain into our lives, intentionally doing things that are embodied and physical and hard as well as uh, psychological and hard and doing that intentionally on a daily basis to get our dopamine indirectly and reset is that just out of comfort zone um you know i think it's going to be different for everybody sort of depends you know kind of what your baseline how hardcore you are (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah yeah and sort of what you've been doing and yeah yeah but um certainly you know um, sort of in seeking out pain and eschewing the convenient thing in favor of the thing that's a little bit harder. Yeah, and, and it's like I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, really? Do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man! So instead of re- you know thinking that you what you do is you reframe it and you say, you know what? It's actually it's really good for me to do that because mm. that will you know, that will trigger my body to start to upregulate dopamine and I'll feel better for it. And we have to remind ourselves of that because we're such a strong tendency to forget it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other ways to do that or something I I call radical honesty, which is trying to go through a whole 24 hour period without telling a single lie, which is really hard for adults to you to do. The average adult tells one to two lies per day. Usually these are small lies that we tell to cover up our own disorganization or selfishness or whatever. Um, but actually being radically honest about everything is a really good way to stimulate the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is an important part of this brain circuitry that um, holds us accountable to future consequences. So radical honesty is a hard thing that people can do as well. Okay, yeah, radical honesty, stimulating the prefrontal cortex, which I guess then allows us, well, you're talking about playing it forward, thinking through the consequences and being able to sort of engage that what the planning executive function. Yeah. You know, yeah, but that, that, that's like a little bit complicated in a way mm-hmm. for people. But, but if you just say to someone, you know what, just, you can't tell any lies, just like go a whole month and don't lie. Don't tell, don't lie about anything, yeah. not anything at all. Cause we'll, we lie all the time. Like what, you know, Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm late. Traffic was really bad. No, it wasn't. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what I've already want. left. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. No, you're not. You're still yeah. in pajamas. Right. <laughs> or, or I'll have a tendency to lie about like the being on the receiving end of that. Like they were like 20 minutes late. They weren't, they were five minutes late, but somehow that story doesn't seem exciting enough. So I have to exaggerate it. Yeah. And I think we do that a lot, you know, and the problem with that is that we're not grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. Once we're not grounded in reality, we're grounded in the opposite of reality, yeah. which is kind of, you know, waking dream state that we're also prone to want to escape to. Mm. You just made me think of the, the, the honesty thing and the shopping thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. no, right, because I went to the shop today and I know I did it, right? So 
I had a full on day today, you know, lots and lots and lots of calls and I come back from holiday. So I had lots of catching up to do. And so then I took my daughter somewhere. And so I'm just racing around. And I was like, so I thought I'll just go for a little drive. I wasn't going for a drive. I was going to the shops. <laughs> right? right. So then I went and I was like, well, I could do with the top. And and then I was really pleased because the top was only like 15 quid. That's like 15 UK pounds. Right. Yeah. And so literally I was okay. That's okay. I'm not out of control. And just as I went to the cashier, I grabbed a bra and bumped it up over 50. And I was like, now I'm done. (laughs) That's it, isn't it? There you go. I I wasn't being honest. Right. So you you raise a really great point, which is the ways in which we're not honest with ourselves. And we we generate this self-talk that is not true, right? But it sounds good and it kind of rationalizes, you know, our irrational behavior and we're practicing it too. Not when we do that self, we're practicing it for what we're going to tell other people later that then perpetuates that false narrative that allows us to not, you know, look at the real thing that we're doing. And this is such a classic part of addiction. Yeah. And you know, when you say, yeah, this, um, as I'm talking about that, I feel a little bit of shame coming up. Sure. So, um, you know, and I know you do talk about shame in the book and I'm wondering how we again. Yeah. How we because I'm I'm a bit kind of I want to make people feel better and myself feel better. Um, So I want to not feel ashamed. So how do we how do we do that? Well, it's a great question. Uh, so sh- shame is probably one of the oldest and more, most powerful emotions that we experience. It's really a gut punch of an emotion. It's really a terrible thing to feel because it's accompanied by this ancient notion of, uh, I have transgressed and now I will be abandoned or kicked out of the the tribe. Right. And that's terrifying because that you're, you know, we die without our tribe, right. Mm. We are incredibly. So, I mean, these are primitive, I think these are primitive reflexive thoughts that come along with shame, um, that have, you know, remained for, for millions of years of evolution. But on the other hand, um, you know, shame is really a pro-social emotion too. Like it's a, we, we need shame, right? Because if we didn't have shame, then people wouldn't follow any rules and our civilization would be in disarray. So the experience of shame is so painful that we want to avoid it. And there are essentially two paths to avoiding shame. One is that we can drink ourselves silly um, and not listen to that emotion and just escape it. And that's the way in which shame can be destructive and perpetuate maladaptive behavior. Or shame can be a really powerful motivator to get sober because if we then leverage that shame to change our behavior, then part of what motivates us to maintain the new behavior is because we don't, we, we don't want to feel the shame again. Mm-hmm. So it's wanting to avoid that shame. So for let's take your, your, your experience today shopping for, for reasons that I'm not privy to, and we probably don't have time to go into, uh, you don't think that you should be buying things in the way that you're buying things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you told yourself, well, this top was just a, you know, it was, it wasn't that expensive. I'm good. Um, but then on the way out, you, you, you sort of got an expensive item and now you're over your limit. And then, you know, that's shame brewing in there, right? Because if you go over your limit, then you 
you know, run up a debt. And then if you run up a debt, you know, you're in financial trouble and it's not just you, it's your family and you got all kinds of trouble going on there. So, but you, you didn't want to look at or feel that shame as a, as a deterrent to buying that second top. So instead it's easier to tell yourself a lie so that you can avoid the shame. So in other words, the lie is already the drink. Mm. The lie is the drink, right? Or it's the precursor to the drink. Um, Because then you don't have to look at the, you know, the the things that your conscience is telling you about why you shouldn't do that behavior. There's something about the pace in which we live as well, because Mm -hmm. all of these things are quick fixes. And then this kind of chronically fast paced thing, it's like, really, I wanted to go to yoga. I didn't have time yeah. to because we were doing the podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so and I'm really glad that we have. But yeah, so it was interesting that I had to put something else in there. But actually, there was something about the dysregulation. There was something about the a discomfort that was intolerable. So I that's why, you know, and it, it's regulation, it's calming down, it's settling down. I it's something around that, you know, which I see a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're so right. I mean, this, the modern life is so stressful and part of the way it's stressful is that we're, we're doing way too much. We're rushing around, we're overstimulated and we get caught up in that, but it, it's not inevitable. We, we can create a world within a world. We can intentionally do less. We can intentionally consume less. We can intentionally slow things down, not be in a rush, you know, say to ourselves, I, I could, in this, in this span of time, I could actually make three stops and do three errands, or I could just do this one thing, mm. which means that I'll get less done, but I'll be a lot less stressed doing it. And that way, you know, if on in the parking lot, walking to, to, to the shop or whatever, if I meet an old neighbor or a friend, I have 10 extra minutes mm. to chat with them. I, it's not, it's not going to make me late to anything. You know, so this kind of like really intentional sort of slowing things down, getting to places early. I love this. My husband's a big proponent of this. He's like, just get there early. I said, how, how, how much early should we get there? He said, get there an hour early. I said, that's weird. What am I going to do? Sit around for an hour there? He said, you know, you sit around because I, I had graduation yesterday. So he said, I said, oh, I'm a little nervous about the graduate because I'm the I'm the head of this thing, right? So he said, I said, oh, I'm a little nervous about the graduation. I have to speak and introduce people. He said, oh, get there early. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, oh, you know, you can make sure everything's in place. If there's something wrong with the table settings, you know, you can fix it so that when everyone gets there, you'll be calm and you can be present for them and welcome them and uh, make it a good experience for them. Like, oh, that's such good advice. And that's what I did. And it was good advice. Um, you know, but it's, it's so counterintuitive and countercultural, right. Yeah. That we would blow things down, that we would get places early, mm. that we would intentionally, you know, adjust our time to be present for others, as opposed mm. to rushing in at the last. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's really, it's anti-capitalist. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like it's reversing, you know, yeah. reversing that, isn't it? Which is again feeding, you know, all of this. I guess going back to that, that's a thread going back to all of this feeds the capitalist machine. And <laughs> yeah, it does. And I think you know, I think you have a lot of probably a lot of parents on your on your podcast. 100%. But I think especially for parents, it's really important 
for caregivers to slow it down and to be present and to not be drunk or on their phones or, you know, to be, to, to, to not be rushing around kids need to, they can feel that, you know, the stress of that. And of course the stress of that, that also then drives, drives the drinking. Yeah. And it does seem to be the mums, you know, it's the mums um, and Dowsett Johnson. I don't know if you've, you've heard of her. She's an amazing author um, and an award-winning journalist. And she said something like um, alcohol is the steroid that, that is enabling women to do the heavy lifting. Oh yeah. And I was like, boom, that is a quote right there. It's, um, and this is, you know, yeah. a, just fantastic talking to you so so interesting thank you so much for coming on oh my 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 pleasure so much to take away from that and I can't believe you know like I've outed myself in my shopping (laughs) (laughs) yoga class this afternoon go to go get go get your yoga I will. I'll Fair be on stage. I'll be like wafting. I'll be doing anything to keep me out of Marks and Spencers. There you bra, go. Bra oil. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, if you're immediately concerned about your drinking, please do reach out, get in touch, send up a flare, find a forum, find some connection, send an uh, email to me at kateatlovesober.com and just know you're not alone. Just, yeah, just reach out and uh We'll see you next week for more chat. And thank you so much, Anna, once again. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome.